Hello, everyone, and this is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore. Welcome to my podcast here、uh, today. Thank you to everyone who's been、uh, joining in, especially in this、uh, last week or so. But、uh, we have Mark Lamont Hill on this episode today, a writer and activist, a professor at Temple University in his hometown of Philadelphia.、Uh, he's a best-selling author whose、uh, books have included Nobody. Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, from Ferguson to Flint and beyond, and、uh, another great book,、uh, The Classroom and the Cell: Conversations on Black Life in America, which he co-authored with、um, Mumia Abu Jamal. Mark actually has a new book、uh, out. Uh, that his、uh, publisher sent me early here, and I believe it's out now to the public. It's called "We Still Here: Pandemic Policing." Protest and possibility, and so today I'm very pleased to welcome Mark Lamont Hill to Rumble. Mark, welcome. Thanks, man. It's good to hear your voice. It's good to be here. I'm really excited. Well, let me say, I,、um, you are such a、uh, a wonderful lightning rod for truth and、uh, and to inspire people to. Turn off the TV and get up and do something.、Mm. And you have been this way for for many many years. But、um, I, I, you know, before we get into, I want to talk about what we're going to do now with Trump gone and all the other things that face us and how we build on this incredible mass movement that took to the streets this year and and something that that、uh, I think most of us. Uh, really haven't seen in our lifetime, or if you're old enough to remember, you haven't seen it since the civil rights days or anti-war days, and and、uh, and this this year became larger than either of those in terms of the actual numbers of people in the streets. But first, I want to talk to you. And maybe people, if you're not familiar with Mark Lamont Hill, but you you have seen him, you've seen him on all the cable news. In fact,、um, he had a, a paid gig at CNN. And、um, and at some point, I'm going to say it was maybe was it a year or two ago? Two years, two, yeah. Two years ago, CNN announced that they were firing him. It was a stunning moment. I couldn't believe it. And Mark Lamont Hill was fired because he had an opinion. He had an opinion and an, and a, and a belief in the tragedy. Of what was and has been happening to the Palestinian people for many, many years, Mark. Why don't you tell?、Uh, just so I don't botch it. Explain to us why you got the boot at CNN. Yeah, it.、Uh, I, I can. I can tell you what happened. They and and people can draw some of their own conclusions simply because I never got an, an explicit answer from CNN.、Uh, but.、Uh, For years, I have been、uh, an advocate for Palestinian、uh, self-determination, Palestinian、uh, human rights.、Uh, I have, as a journalist and as an activist, tried to create space、uh, for a-, a conversation about justice. And I actually was coming back from a,、uh, a-, a delegation that I had that I led to Palestine.、Uh, I'd taken a group of, of activists and artists to、uh, to the West Bank. Uh, and to to East Jerusalem,、uh, and also to to Israel,、uh, to see to see to see things on the ground. And I I flew back a little early because I was invited to the United Nations to speak at the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. And I sat down、uh, and in front of the UN, and I gave a speech、uh, calling for justice. I um. It's ironic because I, I normally give speeches off the top of the head, but I said I'm going to write this one down so that so that to, so that I don't get in any trouble. <laughs> and <laughs> and、uh, I, I I appeal to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It was it was the、uh, anniversary not just of,、uh, of 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 what Palestinians refer to as the Nakba or the Great Catastrophe that happened in in 1948. It was the 70th anniversary、uh, of the founding of the State of Israel, but also what Palestinians refer to as the Nakba. But it was also the anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and so I appeal to the Declaration of Human Rights as a way of showing how we value human rights as a global community on the one hand, but we deny them、uh, to Palestinians on the other.、Uh, and at the end of the speech,、um, I said that we must do what justice requires, and justice requires a free Palestine from the river to the sea. Of course,、uh, 
uh, when I said that, I was saying, I was doing two things. One, I was calling for a one state solution, I believe, in a singular democratic uh, secular state for all inhabitants of historic Palestine. That means that people who are currently citizens of Israel, people who are currently citizens uh, of Israel as, as, as Arab citizens or Palestinian citizens, those who are Jews, uh, I, I believe in a single democratic one person, one vote uh, state for everybody. I don't think anyone should leave. I don't think anyone should be harmed. Uh, but we need a single democratic state. Uh, and, and and I was also pointing to the fact that there's injustice, not just uh, in the West Bank or just in, in Gaza, not just in the diaspora, but also even in the state of Israel, where 20 percent of Palestinians uh, or rather where 20 percent of the citizenry are, are Palestinian. Uh, and I wanted to call, point out the inequalities and say we can get justice in all of these places. We can come together and do this. The speech was based on facts. It was based on data. Uh, and, and so they didn't in, impeach the speech. They said uh, the last six words from the river to the sea uh, were uh, intolerable, that they were um, violent, that they were that they were the same words used by Hamas. And therefore, I was echoing uh, or maybe even showing solidarity with Hamas. I mean, it was the most extreme sort of interpretations of what I said, which w couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, but this was the kind of dishonest narrative that was being created by people who want to keep the status quo. And so the day after the speech, again, I, I thought I did good. Uh, I got a I got a standing ovation at the UN. I'm, I'm thinking I'm having a good day. Uh, the next morning I get a call from CNN and they said that, unfortunately, we heard your speech at the UN and we can't have you on air as a contributor anymore. I said, why? They said, because your speech is inconsistent with our values. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, can you explain what your values are or what specifically were, you know, they, where, where specifically the inconsistency is? And they said, no, we can't elaborate any further. We just you don't represent our values. And that was the end of it. And, and at that moment, not only was I uh, dismissed from CNN, but I was nearly fired from Temple University. I nearly lost my tenure, although I'm a tenured professor with an endowed chair, a full professor, all the things you're supposed mm -hmm. to have. Mm -hmm. uh, Temple also told me that um, I was, uh, the, the, the board of trustees wrote a letter of censure. I'm the first person in the history of the university to get a letter of condemnation. Uh, and the, the chair of, of the board of trustees said that it was, that I, I, I showed, my speech was a rant uh, that was the most disgusting, uh, the, the most morally atrocious thing he'd ever heard. What's funny is this man who said this about me is Bill Cosby's personal attorney. Um, and so <laughs> was oh, <laughs> Bill Cosby, by the way, is also a Temple alum and was on the board. He also was never received a letter of condemnation from Temple University. Uh -huh, um, right. so, so it just gives you a sense of, of, of sort yeah. of what we yeah. prioritize and why. So if you had only said... Yeah, see, the the key is you said the word "see," that's right. that's the trigger word. If you had said uh, a free Palestine from the river to the Starbucks in downtown Ramallah, right? That'd be fine. That man. would you would be still you'd still be on right. CNN, right? <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> to the Walmart just outside Tel Aviv, that right. would have been okay. <laughs> but the fact that you said from the river to the sea, but you know, I'm so glad that you actually explained this because it, it, now people listening to this rarely hear about the one state solution. Uh, but my good friend, uh, Rashida Tlaib and, uh, and Ilhan Omar and others have been talking about this for some time because most, uh, people who at least are trying to support the rights of the Palestinian people, and that includes uh, a lot of Israelis and Jewish Americans uh, who are sickened by the behavior of the Israeli government, and especially the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. But um, the two-state solution, that's been the, that's been the mantra for, for decades, uh, where there's Israel, and then uh, the West Bank and Gaza become Palestine, and it's, it's a, and it's its own country, even though it's, it's divided. I, I guess the, the agreement would have some sort of of a freeway, uh, some, you know, some, some right. like the four hundred five in between uh, Bethlehem and Gaza City. But um, but basically, you, what you're saying and what others now believe is the actual, the most democratic, small d democratic, and fair way to think of this is that. At this point, let's stop the fighting. Let's just say this is one country. It's one democracy. It's right. one democracy, one person, one vote. Anybody who is an inhabitant 
of that. And I guess, you know, the, the Israeli law allows uh, Jews anywhere in the world to come and be a citizen. So I guess to be fair, Palestinians who've had to leave uh, would have the right of return. Uh, uh, to, I'm just making this up. I don't know if this is the, the one state solution, but it just seems to be in my head. Uh, if that's the way it's going to be, okay, then if this is your original homeland, you yes, welcome back. Um, but everybody, it's one person, one vote. And, um, and it'll be a democracy and, and you'll have a majority rule with minority rights. I would hope just like we try to, to do here. Do I have that right? Or do you, can you give a better explanation yeah, of the one state solution? I think, I think you've, 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 hit, you've hit the nail on the head, right? It, it's, it's, a sing, it's a single democratic state where everyone would have equal rights. Uh, one of the one of the the argument from those uh, who are anti this would argue would argue that it fundamentally destroys the Jewish state. That's that's the pushback because they're arguing that if you have the the right to return, right? The law of return has existed in Israel since 1950, but it's only for um, it's only for returning Jews because it's a Jewish state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a, Palest- a Palestinian who say lived in in Rumley or in Lid or or, or any of these other places um, who were forced to leave in 1948 are not allowed to return as citizens of Israel right now. And the right of return, uh, the right of, re- so the right of return is, 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 is a very interesting and complicated thing. Uh, in the context of a two-state solution, people have said, well, yeah, if we have a two-state solution, Palestinians have a right to return, but they can only return to those new areas that would be that, that new designated Palestinian state. So if I were born in, in Jaffa or Yaffa, uh, right near Tel Aviv, and, or if, I'm sorry, if my family were from Jaffa and we got the right to return, we wouldn't be returning to 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 to, to Jaffa. We'd be returning to maybe Ramallah. So th- this becomes part of the challenge because the argument is: if you have one state and Palestinians were to re- be allowed to return, and those in the West Bank and Gaza were considered citizens, then eventually they would outnumber uh, the Jews, and therefore would would control laws. The Jewish state would be dismantled, and they'd be vulnerable again. This is the the argument. Um, I think that there are ways um, to imagine a one-state solution, as I have, uh, where where Israel could, or this land that we now call Israel, could always be a Jewish homeland. That is to say, you can write, you can actually have a constitution rather than what they have now as basic laws, and you could write into it in such a way that Jews who are fleeing, perse- who are facing persecution anywhere in the world, could return to this, could have uh, uh, the right to come to this land. That's possible without it being a Jewish or any other religious state. Um, but the right of return absolutely says one person, one vote. It's not it, no, no longer. There's a, a set of laws that uh, emerged a couple of years ago, new basic laws, the nation state law, which basically prioritized uh, one set of laws, one set of people over another, one one language over another, etc. Right. Uh, Arabic was no longer a main language, but rather it was a priority language, but it wasn't an official language. These are these are things that are creating second class citizenship in the state right now. There are people who would say, that, "Yeah, Israel is, is 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 a democratic state. If you're a citizen of Israel, you're just fine, right? The Arabs and and, and you know they're in the, the Knesset, they're in the parliament. They're they're fine. They get treated the same. Ethiopians get treated the same. But in practice, the laws which are facially neutral actually have a differential impact on people. So whether it's uh, whether it's the, the Nekba law or whether it's uh, 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 admission, admissions committees in neighborhoods. If I want to move in, the, live in the Galilee in certain places, right? There's a commission that decides whether or not I'm allowed to move in based on whether or not, whether or not I fit the social and cultural fabric of the neighborhood. I mean, you can ima- imagine that in the, in, the, in the United States in the 1950s or 60s. <laughs> so there are laws that we have to sort of dismantle, which we could do if we had a simple one state solution. And finally, the argument against the two state solution, because some people say, why not just let me have my Jewish state and why not l- let him have his Palestinian state? And everybody's fine. The problem, th- th- there are a couple of problems with it for me. One is a practical one. Uh, because of settlement expansion, because of uh, the sort of stubbornness of, of the last few administrations uh, in Israel, and because of the, ref- the, the inability to develop any kind of lasting uh, land for peace deal, um, the two-state solution is dead. It's, it's, it's logistically not possible. Um, every two-state option that has been offered to Palestinians has been one uh, that is um, less than desirable. I mean, you can make the case that in the, under the Clinton Accords, that was the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. But 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 still, these questions around land uh, cont- contiguity, the question on potable water, this this uh, this idea of access, all these things are things that we have to really wrestle with. Um, but at the end of the day, 
the two state solution for me is also I don't believe in, in in religious states. I don't believe in in Saudi Arabia as a democrat as, as a religious state. I don't believe in Iran as a as, as a religious state. I, I don't believe in any religious state. I believe in secular democratic states. And so for me, I don't think that Israel should be placed below anyone else. It shouldn't have us. It shouldn't be. Israel should not be held to a standard that other nations are not. But Israel also shouldn't be given an exception that other nations are not. I, well, I the, the idea of any religious state. It automatically, just by saying those words, it, it, it infers that this is not a democracy because if it favors those who are members of a certain religion, and imagine what that would be like in Gilead here, I mean, uh, the United States of America, if uh, one particular religion uh, decided that this, this was a Christian nation and the rest of you are second-class citizens, it's no longer a democracy at that point. I'm so glad that you talk about this. Few people... Are, want to talk about it. They're afraid to talk about it. Um, they see what happened to you, for instance, at CNN. And, and then that the really, I'm sorry that you lost your job, but the big, the big tragedy is that the word goes out to everybody else. Yeah. Don't, don't bring this topic up. Don't get involved in it. Don't say anything about it. And I don't know, maybe I've been lucky. I talk about this. I've talked about this forever. I first visited uh, the occupied territories uh, back in the early to mid eighties and um, could not believe what I saw, what I experienced and um, have been trying to get people's attention on this since then. Um, and uh, so I know people are listening to this at home right now and they're like, okay, you two, you do know, that there's a pandemic going on. Yes, <laughs> you do know. You, you do know that there's somebody in the White House that doesn't want to leave. Uh, you do know that. Well, we have elected somebody, and we want to know what you think about what the steps forward. Because you know, you write in your book here the importance of of what took place this this year. Absolutely. And I want to build on that. I don't want that to be lost they're already not acknowledging the impact of the uprising on the actual election itself right. you know let me tell you folks if there were 74 million as we now know that came out and voted for donald trump we were going to lose we were going to lose in a landslide had it not been for the uprising right I'm serious our side just doesn't come out like that we don't have that vim and vigor that the other side has that that sort of relentless aggression and the belief in what they believe in and the lack of equivocation, when they state what they believe, they mean it. And you know they mean it. And you better get out of the way. Our side, we're like, okay, well, you know, no, 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 my friends. I, Mark, I don't know how you feel about this. And, you know, you live in Philadelphia, so you're going to have to tell us exactly how you stole the election for Biden there uh, in, in Philly, uh, according to Trump. Yes, but, bad things happen here, right? <laughs> oh, oh, there, and. Detroit too, you know, you know what that means. So, so anyways, but though, but seriously, it's like, people are like, Mike, Mark, um, what do we do? What's what, what are the next steps? And, and how do we do it with the pandemic salon and, and Mark, maybe, I, I mean, you, you have talked about this and it's, you, know, you talk about it here, but it's um, you sadly were struck with COVID-19 in the midst of all this going on. And, and you write very powerfully about, you know, wondering if you'd ever see your dad again and whether, you know, uh, and how you don't want to give this to anybody in your family and the whole, all the stress and everything that people are going through right now. And especially if you live and are a member of the black community and how this has hit you even worse. And, uh, you know, I just saw that before we started here recording, I, they were, Sorry, I was watching CNN, but they were they were talking they were talking about that there's like only only forty percent of black citizens are going to line up for this uh, vaccine. Uh, don't trust it. Um, and um, so I so so first of all, maybe talk. How are you? I feel great. You know, um, I I was lucky enough to have the kind of case that Donald Trump wants you to believe everybody gets right. Right. Um, I, 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 the first week was rough. I had a fever, 104. Um, I was fatigued for weeks. Um, you know, uh, dry cough, all this stuff. Um, 
And it was rough. And, and it's terrifying because you don't know, you know, day one, day two, you're fine. Day six, day seven, you know, my best friend lost his grandfather and his father was on a ventilator and, and, and very close to death. Wow. So, and he was fine like I was until day six. So, you know, often you just don't know. So it's a very terrifying and, and isolating experience. Um, but for me, you know, the reason I wrote uh, this new book, We Still Here, was partly because I was trying to make sense of this moment. You know, I was okay, but I also had the resources to sit at home. I could talk on Zoom. I could I could write a book. I could, you know, have, you know, some apps send me food. I could do all of the things that a lot of people can't do. There was a poll, and I talk about this in the book, where 68% of Americans said that money would be a factor in their decision to seek care if they had coronavirus symptoms. So, I mean, so again, like the fact that you are sick because you don't have enough money not to be um, is evil. And that's for me is, is, is kind of the fundamental crisis. And so as we enter this moment of extraordinary possibility with Joe Biden, not because of Joe Biden, but he just happens to be kind of leading the way. Um, I, 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 like you, don't want us to lose the momentum that got us here. Joe Biden was someone who didn't run on the Green New Deal, didn't run on defunding police, you know, didn't run on on abolition, didn't run, you know, on many of the things that we saw as promising and possible in this moment that the people on the ground demanded and created a context for. And so I don't want Joe Biden and his sort of centrist politics, while I'm still grateful that he's not Donald Trump, I don't want his politics to kind of overdetermine what what our demands are for the next four years. I don't want to see another situation like uh, I remember in 04 when we were marching against Bush and marching against these wars and marching for a new presidency. And then Obama came and it was like, oh, those are warm and fuzzy drones. Oh, those are Democratic drones. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we stopped fighting in the same way. Mm-hmm. We have to have the same uh, uh, commitment. You know, I talked earlier about Palestine and it's like, yeah, Donald Trump moves the moves the the, the, the embassy. But the Jerusalem Embassy Act was was signed in 1995 under Clinton. And, is, you know, so there's a way that there's a consistency here that we need to deal with. When I think about covid. Yes, I, I, I think Joe Biden will manage it better. I think Joe Biden will handle covid better at, at the level of logistics and at, at, at the level of just using good judgment and at the level of not wearing not walking around without a mask. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of just basic leadership. But there are fundamental questions that we have to ask that will. And what does it mean to live in a, inside of a prison where you're ma- in New York City, where you're making hand sanitizer, you're making masks, but you can't wear one. Right. How, how do we deal with people who are in Rikers Island, which at one point was the most infectious place in the world right. per capita? And, and you haven't even been convicted of a crime. And so you, you go in like a Khalif Browder for a small petty crime that you probably didn't even do. And you could end up getting COVID and dying. You're essentially getting a death sentence for stealing a book bag or, or, or a loaf of bread or, or a petty drug crime that's probably born out of addiction. So these are the types of realities that we have to disrupt in the age of COVID. And, and instead, as you know, the rich are getting richer as we're getting as, 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 as people are losing jobs and as more Americans are, are evicted or financially imperiled. You know, 21 million more Americans might be into poverty because of COVID. You got the Jeff Bezos's of the world getting rich, right? You, you see private hospitals acquiring more land. You see, uh, you, you know, you, you see more and more, pe- uh, more and more people getting less and less. And that, for me, is the crisis. Yeah, you have a chapter in this book called uh, "Capitalism and uh, and uh, and yeah, Corona. Corona Capitalism." Yeah, yeah Corona, Corona Capitalism. It's a really, it's. A, I mean, speak some more to that because I think um, we need to think about this, and we need to know what you ju- like what you just said about private hospitals. Uh, they're the biggest part of 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 the bill. Uh, th- them and then, of course, the pharmaceutical companies and all that. But, but we rarely think of the hospital as one of the one of the gr- greedy motherfuckers that are there to take advantage of of people. Even in during a time like this, and of course, there's all we have all this sympathy and all this our hearts going out to the people who are working in there. Um, but my question is that, that hospital worker who's cleaning up all that. Yeah, is that, if we double that person's salary because something is seriously wrong, if we haven't, it's the very least of what we can do to yeah. people who are putting their lives at risk uh, so that others can live. No, that's exactly right, and of course we haven't, and so they they are the most vulnerable. I mean, if you look at a public hospital, let's just look New York City for example, uh, which is where the bulk of poor working class patients are. It, according to the city budget commission, right, the cities and, and pu- the public and community hospitals are operating with budgets 
that are like a $2.9 billion in debt. There's a $2.9 billion deficit uh, a, a year. And if you look at the, the five largest pr- private networks, they're all operating uh, at a private, at a, at, a, at a profit, excuse me. Um, and so public hospitals are dealing with twice as many people with almost no resources. And, and, and this creates a condition where, again, how much you make determines the quality of health care you're going to get. The poorest hospitals, when COVID really hit, didn't even have personal protective equipment. People were making their own sanitizer. People were using disposable masks for three, four, five uh, days at, at a time. And, and even the wealthier hospitals had some challenges because, again, capitalism is driving this. And so it, because of overcrowding and, and infection, co- hospitals couldn't do surgeries. They couldn't give cancer treatments. They couldn't uh, do critical medical procedures, which not only made other people vulnerable, but it also stopped revenue from coming into the hospitals. And so the hospitals were struggling. But if you look at these these private hospitals, they had the money to withstand it. So, so while the poor hospitals just trying to get a gas mask and a, me, a face mask and a ventilator, the rich ones are, are, are growing. And like you said, it's the healthcare companies. It, it, it's, it's all, uh, it, it's all, it's all bound up. You mentioned the evil motherfuckers. Like you said, the pharmaceutical, uh, industry, right. Uh, it, it, you, you, you can't even think about, um, what, it, h- how perverse this whole system is where instead of fully investing their profits into research and development, many companies are just waiting until small companies make the innovation. And then they take all those resources to control the product. And so while that's good business, it, it, it means that the chances of, of getting life-saving drugs, not just with COVID, but other things move slower and slower because they're not, try- they're not, they're not hustling to come up with a cure. They're hustling to make as much money um, as, as possible. And, and it's, 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 it's just evil, man. And, it's not just the hospitals. When you look at this, and, and this infuriated me, right? In, in March of 2020, there was a $2 trillion stimulus plan, right? The biggest one that we've seen. And $500 billion went to uh, distressed industries. You know what that means, right? Uh, but then on top of that, the bullshit $1,200 payment. You're talking, you're talking about the love boats. The, <laughs> exactly. the, the, cruise, the cruise liners, yes. A, a, exactly. And then when you look at the actual uh, PPP loans for small businesses, and, I, and I, I own a small bookstore in Philadelphia. I was lucky enough to get the loan. Um, and, and it helped us, honestly. Uh, it, we needed it. But $365 million of, of the funds that went to, to small businesses went to uh, public... Not, 94 publicly traded companies. 25% of those companies had indicated to investors that they were already insolvent before COVID-19. So we were just bailing out rich companies. And $273 million of the funds went to companies that were owned or operated by people who had donated at least $11 million to Donald Trump's campaign, the Republican National Committee, or America's America First Action, which is a Trump uh, super PAC, a Trump-endorsed super PAC. And then on top of that, this is supposed to be for small businesses. Yeah. Yet Shake Shack, which is worth $2.8 billion and, and, and employs 6,000 people, got $10 million. So the, the mom and pop hardware store didn't get any money. The mom and pop fast food restaurant didn't get anything. And Shake Shack, again, worth $2.8 billion, employs 6,000 people, got a small business loan of $10 million. This is... Okay, wait a minute. But the Shake Shack, just, you know, you know in the interest of all disclosure... Uh, provides three of my five food groups uh, every day. <laughs> so I'm just saying they gave it and they, they, they saw the error of their ways and they, they said they gave, what, they gave it back. The others who didn't give it back, like the Trump family, we found out this week got PPP uh, money. Uh, that was, that was pretty amazing. But, um, you know, it, it's, <laughs> Uh, the whole thing, I just feel people are getting scammed. The people that really need the help right now that we have 8 million more people living in poverty that were not in poverty six or seven months ago. The, the people that go to bed hungry every, I mean, this is just, it's an outrage what's going on that there's even a debate in Congress about this. It's just driving me crazy. And in, and in the midst of all this, Mark, the serious shit that we need to be dealing with, we, people like you and I, other progressives or whatever, have to listen to Democrats shitting on us. Yes. Because we're standing up for these things. And 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 we have to be lectured to by someone I voted for twice. Yes. Um that that that, uh, that we can't we should not say defund the police. Okay, so let me just say it. Defund the police. And people, <laughs> I'm sorry, you're gonna have to listen to what this means uh because it it uh uh you know if you say New York Jets, 
that implies that that's a football team, and we know now that it's not. So, <laughs> so, so defund the police. But yes, those are words. But now Mark and I, so we can explain this very clearly to people, because I know the majority of you listening to this believe sincerely that we have to do something about this. Mark, I'm going to let you go first. Yeah, you know, and, and by the way, the, the idea that Barack Obama, who ran on, you know, uh, very snappy slogan and slogans himself, you know, um, would suddenly be against this is somewhat troublesome. There's a way that he merges every every so often to sort of uh, condescendingly lecture the left, the actual left on policies as if we're being unrealistic. I think that defund the police is clear. And I think that we're often getting gaslit by centrists and pro-police unions who are trying to convince us that the problem isn't our demand, but the way we're asking for it, when in fact the issue for them is simply the demand. There's no way that we could articulate this differently that would get us a different outcome. The problem isn't us. The problem is that people can't imagine a world without policing and without prisons. We've been very clear about, uh, let me actually take a step back. The idea that we should be looking for a more reform-based approach uh, would suggest that that isn't what has happened for decades. We we marched in the streets since I was a teenager, right? We, we marched in the streets to integrate police departments. This, I mean, then we can just get beat by black officers, right? We tried to make them live in our neighborhoods. We tried to have them, uh, we, we tried to make sure, that we tried to do community-based policing. We tried the broken windows approach, which obviously didn't work. We have tried civilian review boards. We've tried body cameras. All of it happens and we keep dying. At some point, we have to have a more ambitious and radical vision of what is possible and by asking a real fundamental question, which is what could the world look like if our needs were being met? In Philadelphia here, there was a guy, young guy in his 20s, uh, Walter Wallace Jr., who was, who was carrying a knife. His mom called the police. Uh, the police ended up shooting and killing him. And instead of having the right conversation, we had a conversation about whether or not the police should have killed him, whether or not the police could have used a taser or uh, or, 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 or or tear gas or, or 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 pepper spray, whether, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is that that is such a short sighted piece of the conversation. His mother had called for an ambulance because she wanted a mental health support. She had called three times earlier that day for support. Yes, the guy had a knife. And yes, I agree. If someone's running at me with a knife, if you know, it, it, close to full speed, I would probably shoot my gun too. That's why I don't become a cop. Because I might also do that if you cut me off on the highway. So I decided that being a cop isn't for me. But if I choose that job, one, I have to expect a higher level of danger, but within reason. But the problem isn't the decision that the police officer makes in the, in, in the heat of the moment exclusively. We should also be asking the question, what kind of institutions and, and can we create? What can we put in society so that when someone is having a mental health episode and they grab a knife, that there's someone who can come other than armed militarized police force? How can this man's needs be met earlier on so that he doesn't pick up the knife? How can this person get mental health support so that his mom's not terrified? And so that police don't have to be the social worker, the drug treatment counselor, the mental health person. And that's what defunding is about. It's not just about what we don't want. It's about it's an affirmative vision of what we do want. We want a world where people's needs can be met. And in in the case specifically of defunding, that means taking the money out of that budget and putting it in uh, to drug treatment, putting it into uh, mental health, putting it into all of the things that we have historically defunded. Because the only time people get pissed about defunding is when we talk about policing, because we defund education, we defund mental health, we Hmm. defund housing. We defund all the shit. The only thing time we get mad is when we say it around policing. So let's have a different, more robust conversation. And again, I don't care how I say it. No, there are people who are going to oppose it because they don't want that outcome. Yeah, they, that's what they're really opposed to. And they're using the defund the police thing as, oh, you know, they, they said that. And that that's why we lost seats in Congress or whatever. I, I'll look at it. I say this, that had defund the police not been shouted over and over and over again, it scared the shit out of all the people that should have been scared by it. Yep. And now we're actually having a conversation about do why do we have a police force that looks like, you know, the Soviet army? What what is the what is the point of that? And and like you said, can't this money be used in a better place uh, for, uh, you know, to help people. Of course, nobody wants to get rid of the police. We need police. 
but we don't need the police trying to be a social worker, trying to be a psychiatrist, trying to, you know, uh, uh, and, and police who've not been vetted in terms of their, their racism and all the other things that we have to deal with. I don't want this issue to die, Mark. This We have to stay on top of this. Uh, we have to force Biden and his people to stay on top of this. This, this, we will have such a better country. And in terms of there's a, you have a piece in, in the book here about abolition. And, yeah. and I, and I first saw the word and I thought abolition, what's this, you know, is this a slavery thing? No. Well, it is because the chapter is about, we've got to really open up the prisons and let people out. I mean, now, okay. Granted, <laughs> there are some people that need to be separated. From the rest yeah. of us, okay, we all know their names. We who we know who they are. We grew up with, we grew <laughs> right. up with some of them. But yes. having said that, <laughs> that I I've I've wanted to make a documentary for some time where I just go around like with a with a big um, bus or or some kind of thing where I just go from prison to prison, knock on the door and demand that they let everybody go, and then then the they'll look at me like I'm weird. And then, but maybe that warden, somebody will they'll send a PR person out first and we'll, and I'll have a discussion about, uh, and, and I'll start a negotiation because I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Do you let the people out of this prison? And, um, and then if you want, you can start with the nonviolent ones. Okay. Anybody in there who did not harm another human being, which that's what I call violence. I'm not talking about somebody that threw a rock through a window. I'm talking about somebody who harmed another human being. Okay, just set that issue aside for right now. Let all the other nonviolent people out. Let anybody in there out who was put in there because of, of drug possession. Let them all out. And I got I, I got more buses coming if, uh, if you need more room here. And I just thought because I, I, I this is just a movie idea I've had because I wanted to just this uh, this issue upsets me so much that so many people are are right now maybe some of them are listening to this podcast sitting in prison and. And it's it's not a matter of of so much what you did, but it's what the society has set up. Because basically, we we the society wanted you removed, wanted you there, wanted wanted the separation, wanted to take away your voting rights, all of this stuff that is, should be on our conscience. And you know, I have a, a sister. Um, she's a uh, she and her husband are actually are both lawyers, and they've committed their lives for the last twenty plus years. They're, they're not public defenders. They've set up, they have a law practice that's only for doing appeals to get people out of prison once they're sent there. Can you imagine how hard this job is? <laughs> and they, and then they, you know, if they get a victory three, three times a year, it's a huge thing. Well, last week, my sister, they, they, they didn't get the person out, but they got his sentence reduced from something like it was 16 years to, they got 10 years knocked off it and he's already been in there. So he's going to get out, but you know, they, they do the Lord's work doing this. And, but I hear about it and I hear about all these kids. I, I hear this stuff and I just think, wow, but for the grace of God, yeah. who gave me, who, who, who granted me this skin color? You know, who who allowed me to be in a situation where, um, you know, we were working class people, but we had a roof and we had food on the table and we had a union. Um, Mark, you have spoken so eloquently about this. I know we're, we're running out of time here, but if we could just close with this yeah. and, and just tell us what we can do uh, to... Um, stop this mass incarceration, free the people that are essentially slaves because they're in there doing work for private corporations and being paid pennies on the dollar for it. Um, and, and they should be home with their families and their loved ones. And, um, you know, just tell us how we're going to get there because this seems like such a heavy lift. Yeah. And, you know, I, I come out of a long tradition of uh, of prison abolition. And and I, you know, I owe so much of that to the work of people like Angela Davis and Ruth Gilmore and others who have who have sort of built this intellectual and political uh, legacy. Um, for the, again, prison abolition begins with a vision of the world we want to see. People always think about it as meaning, you know, what we don't want. We don't want prisons. It's not that. It's that we want a world uh where people's needs are met in such a way that we don't have the need for prisons. Um, and it could take 10 years. It could take a hundred years. It could take 200 years, but that has to at least begin be where we began. Uh, for me, uh, prison abolition is uh, five things. 
Uh, one is a moratorium on building. We have to stop building these things. As long as right, right. towns and, and as long as we build them, we'll have a reason to justify it. As long as towns, I, I wrote my second book with Mumia Abu Jamal, who was at, at the time uh, incarcerated at SCI Green, um, and right out, maybe a few out, a little bit out of Pittsburgh. And so I'd fly to Pittsburgh and and drive to the prison, and I'd see them and. You drive through the town and every business, every job, whether it was a bail bond, whether it was, whether it was an attorney, whether it was a surveillance equipment company or whether it was the CEOs themselves, they all worked in the prison. Um, and so the, the town's economic livelihood depended on the existence of people in those cages and the people who were locked up in, 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 in Waynesburg, PA, uh, weren't from there. They were from Philly. They were from the hood where I came from. And so they're now residents of Waynesburg. And so essentially they're now Waynesburg has more population because of all these people who are caged there from Pittsburgh and Philly. And so they're, again, their money, their vitality, their, their congressional representation, all these things are tied to the existence of a prison. So we have to take the profit out of prisons. We have to stop building them and build something else. The second thing is, is decarceration. We have to find ways to get people out of the prison, suspended sentences, uh, getting rid of cash bail. Again, people are in jail. Uh, they haven't been convicted of a crime. They're in jail because they don't have enough money not to be in jail. That's Sandra Bland. That's Khalif Browder. That's so many others. Mm, yeah. We have to decarcerate. We have to excarcerate. That means we have to stop using the prison and incarceration as the resolution to these social contradictions. That means we can get we can decriminalize marijuana. We can decriminalize some of these victimless crimes like uh, gambling, etc. It doesn't mean that we have to have a moral agreement with all of these things. There are people who might say because of their religious disposition that, you know, prostitution is wrong or or gambling is wrong. That's fine, but it doesn't mean we need to cage people for it. Uh, so, so excarceration. The other thing is restraint of the few. Um, there are people who need to be restrained from society, as you pointed out. Um, but the idea here is one, that that's a relatively small number. Right. And two, there, there are ways to do that absent uh, the prison. People say, what about the serial killer? I don't know a serial killer that doesn't have a mental health issue. I don't know a child molester that doesn't have a mental health issue. Uh, how can we create secured confinement that will um, that will protect the public and also treat people? So we're no longer asking who did it and how do we punish them, but we're asking who was harmed and how do we make them whole again? And people might say, well, yeah, if you're locking someone into a mental health facility for 20 years, um, that is the same as a prison. I'd say no. I mean, look at the person who shot Ronald Reagan. He got treatment, he got care, he got uh, investment, and he's now back in society without harm being done to him. But even if I conceded that point and said, fine, that's still a very small slice of the people. We could decarcerate so many others. And finally, uh, investing in the beloved community. That means we pay now or we pay later. We pay for early childhood education. We pay for early literacy. We pay for Head Start. We pay for food secure neighborhoods. Or if we don't, then we're creating the conditions that lead to prisons. So do all of that. And lastly, and this is because I want to end on hope. You know, Dr. King in, in 68 said, only when it is darkest can we see the stars. Mm -hmm. It was so dark this spring. I mean, we, yeah, had, we had COVID, we had police beatings, we had Donald yeah. Trump, for God's sake. Yeah. But, but it was at that moment that we could see what was possible. For years, they said reparations isn't possible. Where will we find the money? How do we decide who gets it? How do we give, uh, give out the money? It'll be chaos. And then suddenly when American capitalism was, in, was vulnerable, we found ways to give out checks. People said, how can we decarcerate? How can we let out nonviolent criminals? How can we stop arresting people on the corners for drugs and neighborhoods that go to shit? And then suddenly when COs and police officers felt vulnerable, we decarcerated people who were right. aging out. Right. We, got rid of, we stopped arresting people for petty drug crimes. We found the possibilities for reparations. We found the blueprint for decarceration in this dark moment. Right. And now that the America is recovering again, quote unquote, at least for the powerful, we have to be able to hold on to that and hold the mirror up to the state and say, look, you showed us what's possible. And we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, look, we were on the ground in Minneapolis and in Philadelphia and in Detroit and so forth. We know what's possible when we advocate and we have to place the same level of intensity on Joe Biden's doorstep that we do the people who we consider our political enemies. And if we do that, I think we win. I think we get the America that we deserve, but it's going to take a lot of work. But I, I truly believe and I've never been more confident than I am right at this exact moment in history that we will be victorious. Well, you believe that, right? Sincerely. Wow. That's why I needed to hear that. I thank you for saying that because a lot of us, you know, we're in this sense of utter despair right now. And you, you ticked it right off. Yeah. We've had a year where the absolute worst president ever, and it happened this year with a once in a century pandemic. It happened this year and, and with an uprising over the, the, the nonstop killing of our black and brown citizens in this country. And that people finally said, that's enough. I mean, this has been, it's been a powerful 
and it's it's been a revolting year. And yeah. um, the fact that you believe that that we can do that, I I'm just gonna I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go with that, and <laughs> okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna advocate for these things that you've talked about. Or the way you listed all those things, it's in the book. Uh, it's called "We Still Here" by Mark. Uh, Lamont Hill. Um, we need we need funds. People get this week. Let your members of Congress know we need more than what they're asking for. We need they're they're, they're putting up more money so they can give it to more cruise lines. Okay, that's I'm done with this. This is we've got to fight this. We need real money for people right now, not Princess Cruise Lines. That's By the it. way, they're an underwriter of this show. Princess Cruise Lines from the <laughs> river to the sea. Uh, <laughs> No, that's they're not. They're not an underwriter. I just I thought of <laughs> Mark. Mark we've got to, You've got to come back on, and we've got to talk about some more of this stuff. This has been an incredible uh, discussion. Keep doing the work that you're doing. People listening to this, get this book. Uh, we still here, and the and the new book that'll be coming out in February uh, uh, called What was it? Except. Except for Palestine. Except for Palestine. Oh, geez, we know what that title means. <laughs> we, we can do better than this, folks. Mark Lamont Hill, thank you so much uh, for, you, for, Appreciate for you. being on Rumble. Uh, thank you for all the things you do from your work on BET, the the coffee, the bookstore, the coffee and books thing that you have in your show with that, everything that you do. Uh, people look up Mark Lamont Hill, pay attention uh, to his good words. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, my brother. Talk to you guys soon. Many thanks again to uh, Mark Lamont Hill. Before I get to my final words on the podcast here today, I, I just want to, we're getting near the end of the year here, and I want to thank um, uh, one of our longtime and early underwriters of Rumble, and that's uh, ExpressVPN. Uh, as you know, ExpressVPN, it's the virtual private network that we all should turn to to protect our privacy and our data online. Earlier this year, you might remember the story that more than 100 Twitter users got their accounts hacked into, passwords, email addresses, phone numbers, all taken from people like President Obama, Joe Biden, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos. Okay, all right, maybe this guy had, had the right list. <laughs> okay, but seriously, though, so one guy, you know, he hacks the people. We're happy to hear maybe that they're being hacked, but don't be so happy because there's two sides to every coin. And the flip side of that is these hackers could be doing me or you. We wouldn't like that, right? I wouldn't like it. And these hackers, you know, they can make up to $1,000 from selling your personal information on the dark web. And that makes anyone a target, not just these famous people that have a large following. This could happen to anybody. So ExpressVPN, our underwriter, uh, is it's an app, and it funnels your data through a secure encrypted tunnel so that no matter what device you're using, you can have peace of mind every time you use the Internet. The app connects uh, with just one click. It's lightning fast, and the best part is ExpressVPN works on up to five devices simultaneously so that you and your whole family can stay protected. So protect yourself with ExpressVPN, our wonderful underwriter. And it's also the VPN that's rated number one by CNET and Wired and countless others. So if you visit expressvpn.com slash rumble right now, expressvpn.com slash rumble, you can arm yourself with an extra three months for free of ExpressVPN. You just got to put the slash rumble in there. Visit them now and learn more on how you can protect yourself. Before we go here, I want to uh, just say a few words about uh, today. Well, depending on when you're listening to this, I'm posting this around uh, midnight on Sunday night. Uh, so if you're listening to this on Monday, this is the last day to register to vote in the Georgia runoff election which takes place on January 5th. Okay, so if you're not registered in Georgia, or if you've just moved there in the last month or two, maybe you didn't get to vote in the big election because you'd moved and you hadn't registered, you have to register today, Monday. If you're listening to this on Tuesday, it's too late. 
We've got to get the two Democrats that are running in Georgia elected, or we're going to have a very hard time over the next two years getting anything done. Why put Joe Biden in handcuffs from the get-go? He's already got one of those walking boots from breaking his foot, playing fetch with his dog as he got out of the shower. Now that we've heard the whole story, he's getting out of the shower, picks up a ball. Now we don't need to go there, but this is, he needs those two Democrats that are, are running against the incumbent Republican senators. So it's John Ossoff and the Reverend Raphael Warnock. These are the two Democrats running for the U.S. Senate in Georgia, we've got to get them both elect- elected. Come on, Georgia. You gave us Biden. You can do this, too. Everybody, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about this before January 5th. But today's job is to think of who you know that may not be registered to vote and get them to register. And they don't have to go anywhere to do this. They can do it online today. I've got the link right here on my podcast uh, platform site. Wherever you're listening to this, it's on the site here. Go there. Click on the link. It'll take you to the Georgia Secretary of State's website, and you can register to vote today. And if you are 17 years old, but you will be 18 on or before January 5th, you can register today as a 17-year-old, and you can vote on January 5th. So do that and tell every 17-year-old that you know who's going to turn 18 by Election Day in January to do this today. Today is today, Monday, if you're listening to this on Monday, today is the last day. Please do this for your country. Okay, my friends, that's it uh, for Rumble. Thank you for listening to Mark Lamont Hill. Uh, be sure to get his book, We Still Hear. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, quick, breezy read, but man, right in the gut, right what we need right now. Um, thank you to my executive producer, Basil Hamden, to our editor, Nick Quaz, and all the others who helped me here uh, do what I do. Greatly appreciated. Thanks to my dad and all the others, too, who signed up on this day or the days after some, what, 79 years ago, Pearl Harbor Day, and um, risked their lives, gave their lives in the case of my uncle to fight this, to fight fascism, to hopefully have a better world. We'll never forget that. We'll never forget the sacrifice of everyone who's made that sacrifice. And we won't forget all of you who are fighting this horrible virus right now. 2021, my friends. All right, we're going to do it. Take care. This is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore.